I was riding down the road, and I heard this song, and I'm like, that is the perfect song for the end series, because uh, Hardy, who's the artist there, captures exactly the way our world views the end. Right here in the Midlands, like right where we live, if you grew up a little bit of church or maybe you grew up Catholic or you grew up one way or another, there's like this, this misconception about what the end's like. And when I, when I heard Hardy <laughs> sing this, I'm like, I got to play that because that's everybody, that's not what our neighbors think. That's what some of us still think. And that's the folks that we need to take the good news to. Like I, as if I was a, a music critic, what I, which I am not because I cannot sing, but, but I would, uh, I, I love the sound. Like I, I turned it up in my car. Like I, I'm trying, I'm listening to the song. I'm like, what, what did he say? Did he just say, give heaven some hell? Like, and then I'm starting to process. So he caught my attention. So it was, it was pithy and, and interesting. So I started processing it in my mind. So he got all that done and he really captured culture. Cause when people listen to the song, they're like, that's exactly right. That's how I think when I go to a funeral, when I see the end of somebody, if I was going to be a little critical, I would, uh, I would want to argue with the truth, right? So from what I read in the Bible about heaven, we're not going to need any beer or clear there, right? Like we're not going to need either one. <laughs> like we're not going to need anything to make it better because it's boring. There's this false uh, idea that most of our society has in their head that heaven's got to be boring because Christians are boring. So, like, on one hand, I'm like, part of the problem is that Christians are boring. <laughs> but the other part of the problem is that we don't have a good expectation of what it's going to be like to be with God. Every sense that you have is going to be overwhelmed if you're in heaven. If you interact with God one day in heaven, you're going to be so overwhelmed with his greatness. Nothing on this planet, including your lugs locked and spinning in the mud on your 10-acre plot. Like, none of that's going to match heaven. You're not going to be out in your truck in the yard because you're going to be near Jesus. You're going to be overwhelmed with this great, I, I, I probably can't put it into words, eternal connection with the living God. So I'm not throwing him under the bus for it. Like, like I, I get it. That's, that's how people think, and he captured it. But I want us the people who know God, to look forward to something better than anything you've ever seen on this planet. Time's infinity, right? The other thing that I want to bait with him a little bit, because my favorite line is to give heaven some hell, because like whoever wrote that knew they were going to go right to the top of the charts just with that line. He actually says that in his interview. I watched his interview. He, he's like, I knew when I heard that line, I had a hit. And, and so then he wrote it. He like, and you could tell he literally cares for folks that are suffering at the end of, of one of their loved one's lives and just trying to connect with them. But I, I just would argue this. Man, we already tried giving heaven some hell. I don't know if you read Genesis, but Garden of Eden was going along just fine. And we introduced hell to it. And guess what happened? Not too long, murder happens. Not too long, wars come about. Not too long, there's tremendous abuse and suffering all across the planet. Work got hard. Labor for you ladies got hard. Everything got hard. We, we introduced heaven to hell to heaven in the past, and it worked out great for it. The last thing we want you to do is bring hell to our heaven, right? Like, so like, like the principle of the song is just, if Hardy was here, I'd be like, play that. But change that line. Let's work on that line a little bit. <clears throat> I think for our culture, the way people are thinking right now is they kind of have this pot of their beliefs 
And for many of the folks in the South, it doesn't really matter whether you're from the South, if you grew up uh, interacting with church, Protestant or Catholic, it doesn't matter. You put some stuff in there. You put some stuff in the pot and kind of stir it. You stir in some superstition, some things that you heard somebody say, like cleanliness is next to godliness. That's got to be in the Bible. You just stir that in there, right? Like, every mama quotes that. That ain't the Bible, by the way, kids. But anyway, like, like I always told my mama that. Anyway, there's like this. Like you, you stir in some of that, like, just cliche and stuff that you've heard all these years. And, man, we've got, like, we got karma in there now. We talk about karma like it's a part of our deal sometimes. Regeneration, you hear that in a variety. Like, you got all that stuff in the in the pot, and we're just stirring it up. And then when we have a crisis, like the end, like a friend dies, then we take the scooper and we scoop it out and we put it in a bowl, and like that's all we got. That's all we know. That's all the authority we have. And so we think about it. We try to console each other with some kind of mix of junk that we've taken in through the years to try to help each other because we don't know what to do in the end. I want to tell you, like if you know Jesus, if you're part of Radius, we know what the end is like. Like one of the great gifts to me as a kid, as I shared last week, was that the church I grew up, they talked about the end all the time. So you had this expectation of what the end would be like. And so when tragedy hit or, or uh, something really hard happened, you could go not to this, this smorgasbord of stuff that's poured into a pot, but to the, to the truth. And see what God said about the end. And the end, for some, will be his return. And for others, it'll be the end of this life and the beginning of the next. <clears throat> in the end, we say this really clearly this morning so that you have a good base. Every single person on the planet that's ever lived, male, female, child, died old age, going to be judged. Every single person in this room and in the rooms, all the children's rooms, we're all going to be judged by the living God. If you missed last week, we talked about this great anticipation of seeing Jesus. And so we talked about the joy and the excitement of seeing him. But there's also room, as you read the scriptures, for some fear when you first see Jesus. If you meet Jesus without him, you haven't believed, you haven't trusted him. If you meet him on in the end, and you have no relationship, it is going to be a terror. The Bible talks about this great white throne meeting at the end where folks that haven't met Jesus, that have decided not to follow Jesus many times, meet him, the Father, for the first time. It's this terrible place called the great white throne where you anticipate God sitting in the judgment seat in full white, the throne being white because white is often connected to his holiness, in full show of his holiness. And you walk in stained and dirty because of sin, and now you walk into the presence of an almighty, all-holy God, and he casts judgment. You show up at the great white throne, you're going to hell. There's no argument to be had. There's no last words to be said. It's done. Church doesn't talk a lot about hell anymore. Perhaps in our past we talked about it too much. Who knows exactly? God, Jesus talked about it a lot. He talked about God the Father the most. If you look at the words he used most in his life, he talked about his dad, God the Father the most. Secondly, he talked about heaven. And third, hell. 
I don't know where the money guys get that he talked about money the most. Money's like 15th this way down the list. I guess when you're nervous and you talk about money, you want to say, anyway, nonetheless, he, he talked about heaven and hell. He talked about the end all the time, that there's going to come an end to this life, whether it be his return, whether it be your death, and you meet him, and then there's the judgment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, speaks about this place called the judgment seat of Christ, which is where every believer, if you've believed in Jesus, you'll meet him with Jesus, right? Like you come to his thing, but you're related to him because of his death, burial, and resurrection. So you're connected to him. You've been made righteous or you wouldn't be allowed in his presence. So if he's holy and you're coming in and you've been made right by his blood, then you belong. It's a great place to be, the judgment seat of Christ, a place we're looking forward to being. But the passage actually Kind of gives it the impression that we ought to be prepared to be there. He prepared us. That's why we got in the door. You don't get in the door without that ticket of belief. But once you're in and you come to face Jesus, this is what it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We'll each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil we've done in this earthly body. It's not that complicated. That's written to Christians. It's written to a church called Corinth in a town called Corinth and he's saying we're going to be held accountable for our life in essence we're in we're with Jesus we're not at the great white throne we're in heaven and we're held account to our lives according to the scriptures at the end some some guys at the college that I coached that when they graduated college they all got the same tattoo on their ankle and it was this passage they put 2 Corinthians 5 10 they were 22 years old. They were graduating college, and they decided to follow Jesus. And they read this passage, and they all, in agreement, wanted to finish life well. So they have this agreement locked in with a tattoo. I don't know. My bones show through right there. That feels like that would hurt like crazy. But nonetheless, they got this tattoo so that through the course of life, they would hold one another accountable for finishing well. It was cool. That's kind of easy at 22. It gets a little harder at 32. At 42, you're like, this thing's taking forever, <laughs> right? Like 52, you're like, man, this is a long race. It's hard to stay in the journey. Finishing seemed easy when I was 22 and in love with the Lord, but walking with him through the course of a lifetime is difficult, and we need each other. So it's cool that they do that in community, and it is right that we would as we anticipate the end in facing Jesus. Last week we read from a book in the Bible called Mark. Uh, the writer is Mark. A lot of people feel like he took his notes from Peter who walked with Jesus. So some, of, some folks would actually think that even some of Mark has been dictated to him by this guy named Peter who walked with Jesus. Last week in chapter 13, verse 4, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they're hanging out with Jesus, and Jesus has told them that the temple is going to be torn down. When they hear the temple is going to be torn down, the first thing that comes through their mind is, the end. It's over. The end of all things. And so they wait a little while and they go across and, and they're asking Jesus questions and they ask him, when is the end? And what are the signs that the end is about to come? And Jesus gives a bunch of answers. We talked about it last week. And I, I want to continue on that path. And I want to read to you some of what Peter wrote, who probably dictated a lot of Mark. Here's what he says in 2 Peter chapter 3. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? 
Anybody ever heard that? Jesus, Jesus, he's coming again. Man, it's been a couple thousand years. From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. It's still spinning on its axis. It's still round, even though some people would argue that it's flat, right? Like, like it's still, all that's still going on. They'll deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out of the water and surrounded it with water. They're saying, in the end, here's what will happen. People will say, God didn't create the universe. We talked about it in our series we did a while back on he, she, his. We talked about four pillars that, that the world will argue to the death that God is not the creator. They've got to come up with another answer. Because if he's a creator, then he's the authority. He's the authority over our bodies because pillar number two, he made us in his own image. If you could argue that we're more like the animals, then we could do what we want to do. If we're made in the image of God, then we're accountable to the creator. Marriage, third pillar. We could argue that marriage is all sorts of things if you take him out of the creator role. But if he's the creator and if he spoke all these things into existence and then he made us in his image and he designed one woman for one man, then marriage is held to that account no matter what you feel if he's the creator. And finally, the interesting pillar that's being attacked these days is that he made us male and female. And so these days we want to choose what gender we are. All assaults against the creation of God. All of them pushing back against the creation of God. So Peter's saying, in the end, they're going to talk about stuff like that. Sound like today? Could it be coming back today? Absolutely could. Now, to be clear, every generation since Jesus came, Thought he was coming back during their generation. We ain't new at this. There's been a bunch of generations in between. He still hadn't come. So he may or may not come during our generation, but he could. He absolutely could. He could come today. Ain't nothing holding him back. There's not like one more piece of the code that has to happen for him to come back, right? Like he's going to come back when he's ready. And he's going to state in these verses that I'm about to read that you and I need to be alert and ready for his return. Mark chapter 13. 32 and 33 read like this. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven, which is a bold statement to humans. Or the Son, capital S himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when the time will come, be on guard, stay alert. Uh, I grew up in a home uh, where my dad was, he was serious about God, but he was also pretty sarcastic. And so when it came to this verse... There was people always writing a book or predicting that Jesus would come. We're like, huh, that's interesting. Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming, but that dude does. That's, that's great. I wonder, man, he'll tell Jesus when to come on. The, the guy wrote the 88 reasons why Jesus would come in 1988, and my dad was chuckling a little bit. Then he wrote another book. He had his math wrong. He wrote a book, 89 reasons he's going to come in 1989. My dad is just busting a gut at the table like, look at this knuckle. He's just making money, trying to deal with people's fear about Christ's return instead of doing what the scripture says, which is to be on guard, stay alert. It's a uh, real easy thing to say. It's difficult to live out. Evidently, the Lord in his, in his sovereignty designed this thing so that we wouldn't know, so that we would stay 
true to him. Occasionally, Cheryl and I will go on a trip. All our kids are grown now, but in the past, we'd leave them at home with the oldest son or daughter at the house. And the day that we're supposed to come back, the boys start texting me. Like, they ain't texting me the whole time we're gone, but the day we're supposed to come back, they start texting me, and they want to know what time we're going to get home. <laughs> right? And you know why. Like, they don't want to tell their mama that they're worried about her getting home. They want to text me. I'm the safe one for a change. Let's text dad because he's a little messy like we are. Let, let's text dad and ask him when it's time to come home. And so, like, they want to know what the GPS says. They don't want to know, like, what I'm guessing. So the great thing in my seat is when they want to know what time, I, I don't know. I'm going to be there in a little bit. Like, keep it, keep it vague, right? Because you know what that means? That means they need to clean the toilet now because we might be just around the corner. Let me get them 83 dishes out of my sink right now and get them clean before she walks in the door because they're going to they're get paid when she comes in the door if they're not ready. So we keep it vague, and it keeps this tension on them, and they got to get clean. And really believe that's what the Lord's doing. You got all this work that needs to be done. He keeps it vague, and he keeps this pressure on us so that we'll be ready. He says, stay alert. Chapter 3, verse 8 reads like this. Again, this is Peter writing. He says, you must not forget this one thing, dear friends, again, to create more vagueness. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. What's he saying? Is he saying a day to the Lord is exactly a thousand years? No. He's, he's reminding us that the Lord doesn't work on our calendar. He works on his. And when he decides to come back, he's coming back. So you better be ready. Mark goes on to say this. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do. And he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch, for you don't know when the master of the household will return in the evening, at midnight, at dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you, I say to everyone, watch for him. There's supposed to be this expectation. I like the line in there where he says, instructions about the work they were to do. Has Jesus left us any instructions like about what we're supposed to do? And then he left the return vague. But he tells these stories, like about the talents. He gives one guy five talents, one guy two, and another guy one. He's, his expectation is that because he's the master and that they know the master, that they would reproduce those gifts. So the guy with five, you remember the story? He reproduced, and there's five. And what does Jesus say when he meets him on the return? It's not Jesus, but the master. Well done, well done good and faithful servant, right? You imagine this hug and He's 10 talents. This dude's multiplied as 5 to 10. The, the guy with 2 does the exact same thing, and it doesn't really matter how much stewardship he's been trusted with. The expectation is that he multiplies what he's been trusted with. So he's given 2 talents, and he turns it into 4, and Jesus grabs it. Well done, good and faithful service. And then there's this guy with the 1. Remember him? He doesn't know the master. He buries the talent. And when the master shows back up, he goes and digs it up and gives this weird description about how he was scared about the master and basically says, I've wasted my whole life. I'm just going to give you back what you gave me. Jesus seems to tell the story, to tell us as he does in other stories like the soils, that it's our job when he trusts us with the good news to reproduce it. There's this work that's supposed to be done. We're supposed to reproduce and pass it on to others. Second Peter makes it more clear. 
what the end might mean for us if we're anticipating Christ's return. Verse 9 of chapter 3, 2 Peter, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some would think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. What a beautiful verse. But the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly like a thief. He wants everyone to repent, but he's still coming, and it's unpredictable. 2 Peter 3.14, and so, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, speaking of the end, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Pretty, pretty cool verses that show the compassion of the living God. And he wants folks to believe and have relationship with him. As I read them, I can't help but think about last week where at the very end of, of us going through the beginning of Mark chapter 13, we, we actually read this, this verse in Revelation that says, come, Lord Jesus. Like we're supposed to be saying, come, Lord Jesus, like, like come now. And you read this passage, like, wait, 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 Lord Jesus. Like, so on one hand, we're looking forward to seeing him. On the other hand, we want our neighbor to see him, right? My brother, my sister, my parents, the people in my radius. We named this place for that, like we felt responsible for the people around us. In this passage, we'd actually say that the Lord wants to know them. He wants them to repent, says one verse. In another, a time to be saved. So it seems as we stay alert, as we're ready, Right, because we know that this could be the end. If you have any question whether this could be the end, just pull that thing out of your pocket if you're not already texting on it right now. I can't see. I can't see y'all. Like, like how connected we are to that thing. What, what happened a couple of days ago? We had a tornado, and we all heard about it at the same time. We're that connected. If you ever wanted to think, is this the last time? That thing would say our generation could be the generation. This could be the end. He says if it's near the end and you think it's near the end like every generation has, then you got these responsibilities in this passage. Responsibility as far as being ready, he says, to live peaceful lives, pure and blameless. That's pretty cool. The other day, uh, Carlos Richardson, he's a freshman at Clemson, got this, this uh, swing for his mama. Uh, it's kind of, you know, like the port swing, but you can hang it from a tree. So I went over there, took my extension ladder, and we found a tree out in their yard, and we were hanging it. And I climb the ladder, and I go, Carlos, hold the ladder. And he's like, Mr. John, you sure? Like, I guess he thinks I'm too old to do this. And, and then when I, I think maybe he noticed that I only had, like, one part of the ladder on the tree. Anybody else do these kind of things? Like, I just had, it was a limb. It was kind of hanging like this, and only one piece of the top was on the tree, so it's a little wobbly. I'm like, just hold it, dude. We're good. I'm, I'm going to get up there. It's only, like, 12 feet. I mean, I'm, you know, athletic and stuff. So like, Carlos, let's go. So I climb up the tree. But when I get to the top, I hook my left arm over the limb. You know why? Because I'm ready. Because I know what I'm doing is dumb. Tell Cheryl that if she hears this story. Like, I, I know what I'm doing is dumb. And sure enough, the ladder comes out from under me, and I snack onto that limb. And Carlos is like, Mr. John, Mr. John. He's mad at me. Like, Just get the ladder and get it back up. I can only hold on so long. Like, like, like there's a readiness because you're stupid, right? <laughs> there's a readiness because you're excited. We talked about it last week. And there's this readiness because there's this deep reverence and even fear. 
for the consequences of ignoring a holy God. So we're going to roll in one day. If you believed in Jesus, we're going to walk into his presence. We're going to come down. I just imagine that I walk down and meet the living God in the form of Jesus Christ at his judgment seat. He's going to evaluate us. And one of the things he's going to evaluate us on is our, do we live peaceful and blameless lives? What's that mean? You might be able to look at your social media right now and decide whether you're peaceful or not, right? Some of y'all don't look so peaceful on there. You look like you won't fight, but you do it online because you're scared to really fight, right? Like, like, it's a, like it's, it's like we just don't seem like that peaceful. The Christians in America right now don't seem like that peaceful of people. We're mad about everything. We're angry all the time. He says that we live peaceful lives, but it seems to be more connected to purity and being blameless. So there, there is this expectation that the followers of Jesus have this high code of morality. It's taught in the scriptures throughout history. The church, certainly in the South, probably beat this drum too hard. At times, we always talked about what you can't do. And so we have these sayings like, I can't drink, I can't chew, or date somebody who do. I, I can't remember exactly how that thing goes. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we got all these sayings about what we can't do. So then folks kind of got annoyed with church and worried that like you, we're going to bring somebody here and they're just going to get reamed on. But there is something to living a moral life. There's this expectation that if you're going to stand before a holy God, that you would be holy and that you would be preparing as if the Holy Spirit really lives with inside you, that he'd be moving you toward holiness. <clears throat> but perhaps what's more important, we don't talk near enough about it, is what you do. Not what you don't do, what you do, what you do do, right? Like, like there's this expectation that the followers of Jesus, because they've been filled with the love of Jesus Christ, that we would overflow that love. I can tell you how you check. You can uh, pull up your calendar if you're organized. I'm not super organized. But you could look at your calendar. But we're, we're ending the first quarter, right? We're just rolling into April. You could look at January, February, and March, and you could just evaluate Where's my time go? Is it primarily invested in me? Or is it really obvious that on my calendar I care about others and I care about God? You can do it with your bank account, right? Like I, I'm at Wells Fargo. I can go to Wells Fargo and I can go through all those, all those entries since you got a debit card. There's thousands of them, right, for three months, and I can just go... Who am I really interested in? Is my life centered around Jesus? Like, can you tell based on where the money in my family goes that I'm centered around Jesus? Does it look like I love my neighbor based on where the money in my family goes? Or is it all about me? The good news is it's April, so we're in the second quarter. You can make an adjustment. That's what we do here. We remember every week this death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and we see the one who lived holy and generously and we're reminded by his death and burial and resurrection who we're supposed to be. And so as we anticipate meeting him, we know who he is. We've heard it, many of us, our whole lives. And he's just asking us to align our lives with him. We put it in our mission statement. We say that Radius Church exists to glorify God. And then we name some ways that we would like to glorify God. Making disciples, planting churches, living generously. But at the end of the day, when we meet Jesus, hopefully our lives will be built in a way that glorifies him. And you'll be able to check it quarter by quarter. I don't know about you, 
I have some bad quarters. Even perhaps if you looked at my calendar and at my bank account, you might think that I had a good quarter, that I was aligned with who Jesus was, but I know where my heart was. I was doing some stuff out of discipline. It's not all bad, but my heart was selfish. And even though some of my stuff looked right, I was pretty consumed with myself. How about you? Hey, second quarter. Let's check it. And let's rework it. Today could be the day that he shows up and meets us face to face. And then finally, I love this passage, particularly thinking of Easter. As I prepare, certainly there's this part about peaceful lives, pure and blameless. And then there's this part about uh, that he wants everyone to repent. Later in the past, he says the Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. We named this radius because we want to be responsible for the sphere of influence that we have. And as ambassadors of Christ, what does he want to accomplish? He wants all on the planet to know him. It's our job to take that good news to them. Easter's the easy one, right? Next week, you're going to put on some kind of bright clothing. And I've got one shirt. You can reuse it every year, by the way. And you're like, you're like you got 10 years out of it. Like You put it on with your khakis, and we're going to come down to the amphitheater. We're going to have a good time worshiping the Lord. But we share the gospel every Easter because it's the Sunday of the year that the most people come to church. You guys are doing great. This is spring break. This is like one of the lowest Sundays. So y'all get extra star. I'll give you extra star on the way out the door. But like next week, there'll be hundreds and hundreds of people at the Radius churches all over and other churches. And we want to present the gospel because we hope again... Just that, that one time hearing the gospel, they'll believe. And really, as we mature, we're dreaming about a church that doesn't need to invite folks but can actually share the gospel ourselves with our neighbors. But next week, that's like, that's like a no-lose situation. The end is coming. Your neighbor's going to be at the amphitheater. You ought to at least give them that opportunity. Because one day you're going to face Jesus. I don't know exactly how that thing's going to go down. But the way I read the scriptures, the multiple passages about it, it seems like it's going to be this amazing moment where I meet Jesus for the first time. At the same time, there's a possibility I could suffer some loss. I might even shed some tears. The Bible says he'll wipe our tears away. It doesn't say we won't cry. Like, like when I see him, and I realize his greatness. I have this feeling I'm going to be processing. I should have told somebody else. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work. I don't want to overthink it or overproject what the scripture says. But I, I just want to ask you, if Jesus was sitting down on the deal right now, if he sat down right here and afterwards we filed up and met him, what would you want to have done before you see him? Like he did all the work. Don't get me wrong. It ain't nothing else you can do to get yourself into the line of the judgment seat of Christ. If you believed in Jesus and been transformed by the Holy Spirit, all that work's done. You're in. You're a son of God, a child of God. But when you see him and you know about him, what do you, what do you, what do you wish you had done? Is there somebody you need to forgive? I'm not talking about like if there's an abuser and you like giving up the space, keep the abuser away, keep the space away. But do you need to work on your heart and position it in a position of forgiveness? Because you're going to walk up to him and realize how much he forgave you of. What needs to be done? I got one conversation, a truth conversation. 
came on my radar Friday that I don't want to have. But I got to have it. I need to have it. I want to have it done before he comes because like, that's who he is. He told the truth to the people he loved. And this is going to involve a drive for me. And I need to go get in front of this person that I love and, and tell him the truth in love. What do you need to do? Do you need to repent? Is there something hidden that you'd rather go ahead and bring out into the light? And so if you walk down to him and he's here next Sunday on Easter down in the amphitheater, you came and met him. I, Lord, yeah, I, you come in there a whole lot better position having owned it before the end. I don't know exactly how that thing's going to work out. I know that the passage says four times in the last three verses to be alert, to be ready. And I want us to be. We remind ourselves regularly with this bread and juice to be ready. Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me. So we're disciplined. We do it week by week by week. One of the things that 1 Corinthians says is when you come and take the bread and juice that you examine yourselves. It seems particularly that we would examine our sin life. And before we came and took the bread and juice that we would confess our sins to the Lord. That seems to be a readiness practice, an alert practice. And so you can come and take the bread and juice in a, in a weekly basis, communally. We come up and take it, and we check. We check our hearts. We also do it in remembrance as we remind ourselves of who our Savior is and the way he rolled, right? All the way to the cross on behalf of others, undeserving. And so when we take it and we walk out the door, it puts our eyes on others, and we're willing to sacrifice on their behalf as we live like our Savior. Let's pray together. So, Lord, you know me. I'm looking forward to the end, and I'm a little scared of the end. And Some days I feel like I got stuff to do. So help me have the right concept of the end. I got friends, people that I love that have a really poor picture of the end. It's kind of made up based on all variety of things they've heard during the course of a lifetime. Lord, would you use me to help them understand the truth about the end of their life and about your return? Lord, would you use us as a group to explain the gospel to our neighbors? Lord, we want them to believe. We agree with you. We want all to repent. We want them to be saved. Lord, you know us, Lord. Some of us, we, we, we got one foot in the ditch and one foot on the road. We're struggling to stay straight. Pray that even this morning, Lord, as we read that passage about being blameless, peaceful people, that you'd rescue us, that you'd pull us out of the ditch. Pray that you give a, a man or a woman in this room the courage to bring something in the darkness to light before they come and take this bread and juice. No, Lord, you're willing to meet them right in that moment. Help us as we walk through these, uh, these days, years, hours, whatever you're going to give us until you return. Lord, if it's going to be generations ahead, we want to pass the baton well. Help us. 
coming soon, Lord. We want to be ready. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.